So, Rebecca, I got a bunch of emails from patrons that we can read on the air and answer. What do you say? I'm all in. <laughs> Anonymous patron says, I just recently started seeing a therapist for the first time in my life. I've only had two sessions, and, and I'm finding it very difficult to decide if this therapist isn't right for me or if she just or if she's just telling me things I don't want to hear. I went to her because I've hit rock bottom with anxiety and depression, mm. and I want to learn coping mechanisms. But my second session, when I was explaining how hurt I felt when my family doesn't actively want to do things with me, she pretty much told me that maybe I'm just not a pleasure to be around. Mm. I left extremely upset and cried all evening because I hate most everything about myself. I don't want to go back to her because I felt the session was more hurtful than helpful. But now, but how do I make the determination between that or maybe she is right and I just don't want to see myself in that way? Rebecca, what do you think? Well, it sounds like you need a therapist with a more humanistic lens and less confrontational. I would want to hear from that therapist. First off, I'd want to check in with them. And say as a client, as a client, and say, I. It sounded like what you were saying was that I'm foul to be around, <laughs> and that's why I don't have any friends. Is that right? <laughs> so, because I've often had people come back to me and say, "Here's what you said to me," and I'm like, "Hmm, like let's spend a little bit more time exploring that." Right, because what the anonymous patron is saying is the therapist saying, "Well, maybe your family." doesn't want to do things with you because you're because you're just not a pleasure to be around um or the therapist said something else that was intended to mean something else mm-hmm. but just came across that way that kind of thing because it'd be weird for a therapist to just think that and say it right wouldn't you say when you think yeah i I only when i have a very long history with a client will i call people out on the table because you could see a situation where that might be true where you know someone well enough to know well they do come across as a little abrasive sometimes Mm -hmm. and maybe that's why your family avoids you but also when i say something that intense i'll always give the client an opening (laughs) like agree or disagree right Um, because i want to check in you know if i'm off base i would want to know so that could be one thing to say to your therapist is, you know, I cried all night. Because um, that's another thing I'll say to my clients. Hey, if this brings up too much for you, or this is, you you can't organize yourself after the session, let me know. Because we're not, it's I, it's not a good thing if you s- go back out into the world and you can't function. Right. So, you know, please let me know and I'll work in a different style. Right. Patron Aaron from Ireland says, I think I want to be a therapist someday. I wanted to know how hearing about people's trauma affects you. Mm. I'm worried that I will be really upset by some people's stories. Did you find it really overwhelming at first, Rebecca? Yeah. I mean, it does impact you. How did it affect you? How did it affect well, you? I was how thinking does it affect you? My first job outside of... After graduate school, I was in the South Bronx, and it it was outpatient, but it was right across from inpatient. It was an intensive day program, and I saw clients literally fight over a plastic bag, and then I would go 
leave my job and like go into Manhattan to meet a friend after work for drinks and I'd see somebody with a $3,000 bag and I would lose my mind. <laughs> like, oh, meaning you had clients who would fight over the bag because they desperately needed the bag. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, or felt like they needed the bag. Yeah. Um, so you see a lot of stuff. I mean, over time, I definitely learned how to deal with it. But I always joke with my friend who's an electrical engineer that, like, he doesn't see the worst of society all the time. Yeah. You might see some people that have made some bad electrical decisions. Yeah. Um, but it's really different. And just over time, you know, you just see that clients are resilient and people, most people end up okay. Um, and that the benefits of the work really outweigh some of the situations that are hard. There is a support group for, what are they called? Overly, not overly sensitive. Um, <laughs> I would never highly, use that term. Highly sensitive. I would never use that term. Highly sensitive. Highly sensitive therapists. There is a Facebook group for highly sensitive therapists. Yeah. Because people stay. I've seen one person I know is highly sensitive, and she's stayed in. She's found her way. Yeah. Sometimes they use the word gifted. Um, these kinds of words. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring that up. That eventually you learn as a therapist that it doesn't. It's not as dire as it feels when we first start out. It, it, there are situations, uh, you know, a lot of clients we get exposed to earlier in our career, and it, it just feels like an emergency. And then later on you learn, like, it's not, sometimes it is, but it, it usually isn't an emergency, you know, one way or the other, and there's not much you can do anyway as, as a therapist. You're not going to turn the boat around. Right. My joke is I'm not a miracle worker. Like, right. <laughs> you know. I'm here to help you reflect, problem solve. There's some basic things that I can teach you or remind you that you might have forgotten. Um, but I, you know, I'm a guide on a journey. It's your life. Right. It's, and that, that freedom of like, oh. I'm not responsible. I can't solve these problems, but I've watched enough people solve their own problems that yeah. I know that it works. Right. Or tell a story that's been holding them back by keeping that story silent. I once had that that experience. I only saw a client for two sessions. The second session, he was ready to tell this horrible tragedy from his childhood. And he looked at me after he was done. He was like, huh, I've never told the whole story out loud to somebody. And I was like, do you feel different? And he was like, yeah, it's, it's not my burden. I was like, yeah. And that doesn't always happen, but you know, it happens enough that you, I understand my job is to witness someone in their experience, not, I don't know, be some kind of magician. Well, I think what Aaron is asking about is your early career and you have, say, one out of every three clients that is talking about abuse that they've been through. Some mm -hmm. of them might even be kids. And it's your job to hear those stories, and it's painful. Mm -hmm. uh, and it can I, I th the errands of the world are worried that it's going to destroy him. Yeah, and it you know we know that seventy five percent of people drop out of this field by is it the five year mark or the seventy five percent? Yeah, I didn't think it was that high. That's not anecdotally my <laughs> experience. Seventy five percent that seems high. 
That's interesting. But that's people that don't even, that's including people that get the degree and never use it. But still, anecdotally, I can, you know, out of the hundreds of people that I've trained and worked with and know, I can only think of a handful of people that dropped out. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, we'll try and find the statistic and compare it back and forth. But I will say that those of those who did the handful that I do know, it was uh, in part due to this issue of I cannot listen to these stories. Mm -hmm. I had one uh, colleague. Well, it was an early supervisee of mine, actually, but I felt like she was a colleague because I was like 27 and already a supervisor, that kind of thing, you know. And she was an intern, and we were running an anger management group for these kids and these teenagers. And this boyfriend walks in, just walks in off the street because there was no security in, in mm-hmm. the building. In fact, it was a it was a house that was converted into a mental health agency in Federal Way. So he just walked in the back door, sees his girlfriend, and she, and he's like, "Hey, come on with me." And me and the intern are going, "What are we supposed to do?" Because mm-hmm. <laughs> we can't restrain her, mm-hmm. right? We're not going to lock her up or anything. And so we're like, we're looking at each other. We're like, uh, you probably shouldn't do that. And the girl just stood up and walked mm-hmm. out and it turned out to be fine. The parents, you know, didn't flip out. There was, he, you know, he, they just hung out and she went home a couple hours later or something. But after the group ended, we were both, you know, trying to scramble. Do we call the police? Do we call the parents? Uh, do we have authorization to call the parents? what what are we supposed to do? And it was late at night, you know, the elder statesmen in the agency weren't around. They'd all gone home. And this is before cell phones or mm-hmm. anything. So it's like, and for me, I was stressed out, uh, but I was like, well, I don't know. I, I don't know what to do. I think, I, I think we'll just do the best we can. She crumbled mm-hmm. under the, under the pressure. And I kept telling her, I, am the superior. If anyone gets blamed, it's going to be me. Don't worry mm-hmm. about it. You're the intern. At the time, I'm like, why is this on me? But, <laughs> but, but, but I noticed how how badly she was taking it, mm-hmm. and how how scared she was, and how you know I don't know if something was getting triggered in her about mm-hmm. you know boys coming and you know, seemingly in an intimate partner violence ish kind of scenario. I don't know if that was what's happening. There was no indication of that, but it kind of had a yellow flag of that. And I don't know if that was going on, but she, I remember in that one instance, she crumbled and within a couple of weeks, I think she was telling me in confidence that she, because of that, she, she was like, I'm out. I can't, mm-hmm. I've, I, I clearly do not have the, the stuff to handle these kinds of, because she saw the way I dealt with it, which mm-hmm. is just like, yeah, it sucks. You know, anyway, going home. Um, but anyway, I was interrupting you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we have all seen those students or people along the way that something happens and they're like, I just can't do this anymore. So of the students that you worked with and mm-hmm. trainees, did you see it a lot? I know a fair amount of people that aren't in the field anymore. But that's so interesting. Yeah, because I can, I can only think of a handful of people. A classmate, well, I guess... Two classmates of mine, one immediately started working for CPS and the other one a few years later. I guess I, I, I'm thinking of some more people 20 years down the line. Um, incidentally, I don't know if I told you about this friend of mine from high school who became a, 
a prominent figure in the pray away the gay. Oh, you know the conversion therapy mm-hmm. field. Jason no. Graves. He's he. I can Has say he his since name. Come He's, out. <laughs> if you haven't seen the documentary yet, people, it is well worth your time. And the surprise hero is Lisa Liu. Lisa, Lisa oh, fuck, I screwed up. Anyways, watch the documentary. It's yeah. very important. Meaning that the, I'm guessing you're saying that the internalized homophobia, heterosexism, that gets rattled around in the evangelical Christian young gay person's soul emerges in a conversion therapy, either as a client or a therapist activity, right? Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah, I can say his name because he, he was prominent in media as a conversion therapist working with people. There were testimonials and videos and him and I would debate the issue years ago, 15 years ago. I remember arguing with him about it and just saying, what? You know, it's it's so illogical. And he would agree with me on a lot of things. He's like, well, okay, I can see that. Okay, because he he's not like terribly unreasonable. When I boiled it all down to the very bottom floor of the foundation of where he came from, I said, well, I just don't think that God, if there is a God, thinks that being gay is a sin. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, I do. <laughs> Because that's what they believe. Right. And, and, and so, and Why I work so hard on it if you're trying to stay out of, really, your main goal is to stay out of hell. Like, let's right. Right. Exactly. exactly. So because you believe that, because he believed that, that's what everything else stemmed from. All mm-hmm. the other, all the rhetoric, all the testimonials, all the, well, this is voluntary. Clients come to me and ask for a conversion mm-hmm. there. I don't, I don't seek them out. You know, they're... And look at how happy they are now. They're now living a uh, life in God's arms or whatever they say, and they're not gay anymore. They have they have children, they have a heterosexual relationship, and look how happy they are. They're thriving, and before they were using drugs and on the streets. You know, they always equate mm-hmm. all that. And, and I'm like, well, there are reasons for that, you understand. <laughs> when you oppress people and you make them feel like crap and you abuse them, then, yeah, they're going to be traumatized. They're going to turn to substances sometimes. And you're not helping, by the way, Jason. And, uh, and he's, you know, but there was always an excuse in there, you know. And then, again, it always just came down to, well, you believe it's a sin and I don't. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's the divide, that's what differentiates you from me mm-hmm. is that one idea that you believe that being gay is against God's will. And I do not believe that. Mm-hmm. And is it equal to divorce? I mean, because a lot of those people also believe that if you get divorced, you're also going to hell. So right. like there's a lot of restrictions right. on their lives. But this is a whole other subject. We were talking about <laughs> why... We can stick with this work even if the stories are hard right. and there's some people who are crushed by it. And I just think like you will find that work out actually by actually doing it because there's some people who are really fed by it and fed by the yeah. few but powerful uplifting stories. That's what it was like for me. Did you? Was it like for you? Was it hard for you? I mean, I think, uh, so I worked in the South Bronx. Well, that's kind of different, you know, because those clients, they're not dying to be in therapy, right? Yeah. So it's kind of, that's rough. 
But what about once you got to a place where the clients were like, you know, they kind of wanted to be there and they were talking about a lot of traumatic events. Did you go home and cry yourself to sleep at night and have a lot of stress because of it? Well, what I realized, which is, I would say is would be okay. It'd be yeah. normal to have it. Happen. I mean, what I realized is it's up to me to practice my craft. So it'd be like, if you were crashing cars for a living and you're like, oh, that one crashed, but it's actually your job to observe that crash and get information from that crash and report that information. Like, it's my job to, to witness, it's my job to use my therapy skills. I would say this a lot to beginning therapists, like, it's not your job to fix that person, it's actually your job to grow as a therapist. And you always knew, you always knew that in the beginning? I think I did, um, but I'm not a, much of a fixer as it is. I mean, this is one of those things where like, I'm not hardwired for that kind of feminine codependence. And like response, I'm responsible. Yeah, yeah I don't have that. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, that I think, gene. yeah, maybe I would phrase that for me too in a similar way. I, cause people ask this occasionally, it's like, how do you deal with it? And, and, to some extent, I say, well, you know, with experience. But then I was thinking, you know, when I first started, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't take it home with me. I mean, mm -hmm. I would take clients home with me, but I didn't, it didn't plague me. Right. You, there wasn't a level of personal responsibility that you felt for fixing what you're seeing. Yeah. It didn't freak me out. It didn't. Well, so I think there's responsibility, which obviously, you know, the savior complex and, and how, and the dependency issue i think that can absolutely affect people but i also just think there's a triggering issue of hearing about you know someone comes in they say when i by the way trigger alert i'm about to say something skip forward a couple minutes if you're triggered by things of this nature but so you know client comes in and says when i was four to until 15 my father routinely raped me and and here are the stories you know um for some people, I think for obvious reasons, that would be very triggering to them. And it would evoke a lot of distress, PTSD for them as therapists. But for me, since I don't have those kinds of traumas, it never did. Well, and for me, who has that kind of trauma, I, I knew that I lived through it. And it would be my hope that... It never tricked you? I mean, in the sense that I know we can all get... This isn't who that person is. This is something that was wronged and done to them. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember her name. Oh my God, she pretty much invented uh, di discussing rape in therapy. Anyways, there is a style of feminist therapy that believes that the most, that it's the tell the story, be witnessed in the story, find new ways of being. And I think because I came to therapist being a therapist with a women's studies degree i already knew that really bad things happened in the world right i'd already been through my own therapy mm -hmm. and i knew that i was a better person for having gone to therapy so there's the active the active telling became more well, that person gets that wound cleaned as opposed to, oh my God, I can't believe that ever happened. Right. It's like, yeah, mean, I the stories that I heard in the South Bronx, and I also worked with people who'd been through the Vietnam War. Like, I mean, the stories of human destruction and depletion that I have heard. Yeah. But these are all 
survivors. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the first client I had was a trans woman who had just been thrown out of a car because she was trans, moving car, and had, and then walked to the session. <laughs> Black woman was crying the whole session. You know, it, the amount of pain that we instantly, like that was either my first client or my second session. or It was very early and I remember I was in like some closet at the at the at the <laughs> agency, you know. And I remember it being very dark, like we didn't have enough lighting. But anyway, uh, in my head, it's like an attic, but I know that can't be true. Mm. But anyway, um, yeah, I think that's a. I don't know why. I, I you know I grew up a very cushy, privileged life, but for some reason I always knew the world was a terrible place. I don't know why I always knew that. He's an old soul. <laughs> and so when I heard uh, of these horrible things, it it never rattled me. I, I remember it never surprised me is a better mm-hmm. way to put it. I wasn't like, what? That happens? You know, and, and I would hear that from trainees sometimes of like this this deer in headlights look of like, well, what, what did you think you were going to hear when you became a right. therapist? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a level of you're going to hold the hard stuff about our culture that especially in American culture we spend a lot of time denying right so an example of all this is that you just helped me out a few days ago you were a guest at the Garfield High School PTA meeting and I (laughs) am serving on the PTA right now which is if you know me I am not a group person but this you're getting involved. You're you're shaking it up. I'm shaking it up. Uh, a, a request went out for a lot of positions. This were, is where your son goes to school. Yeah. A lot of positions were vacant. And one was to be the PTA liaison between the crisis counselors at the school and the funding that the PTA has. And so I thought, oh, if there's one job I can do is hear these really rough stories and see if we have the funding to help that job's not going to kill me. Where I could see other people I know just be like, oh my God, somebody died? Right, Right. and and you'll see that from Mm non-therapists. You know, you'll hear people when they first get exposed to what we hear about all the time, you'll just, which I guess makes sense, you'll see a, a reaction from them of just like, whoa, that's really heavy. And to us, it's like, yeah, (laughs) <laughs> the world sucks. <laughs> you, you, you're just realizing that? So you and I were having a pretty frank conversation about suicidality in this talk that we just did. Right. There were a bunch of uh, parents and teachers in this meeting. Yeah. yeah. And several people have commented to me, you were so calm in that conversation. You know, you weren't rattled. And I was like, oh, right, because I talk about it all day. Yeah. It's okay. In the meeting, you and I were talking about, you prompted me to talk about, you were in charge. And by the way. Finally. (laughs) Well, and by the way, like, I really had no idea what was happening. I didn't understand the landscape. And so every once in a while, you'd throw to me and I'd be like, just trying to guess at what people would want to hear about. And I found myself rambling about. Now you know what it's like. On the other end. That's how I feel every time we podcast. Revenge. Um, I finally got my revenge. But you're saying that, you know, you and I were talking about how kids in the high school at Garfield are thinking and attempting suicide. And 
here's the science, here's what to do, here's what the kids are going through, here's what we need to do as a as a school board or whatever. And people were reaching out to you afterwards just going like, whoa, like you just sort of just talked about it <laughs> as if it was just a normal part of life. That's what you're saying? Yeah. 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 Which and it that, is, by the way. Right. <laughs> Extremely right. normal. And that's not a conversation that many people have on a daily basis. Yeah. I and mean, I was thinking at the worst of the pandemic, I had a client who was expressing suicidal ideations. And I just sat with her and stayed with her. And we got through that session and she got grounded and realized that, you know, that wasn't the only option out there for her. And I was like, yeah, this is this is our work. Yeah. Not to be like, oh, my God, how can you feel that way? You yeah. shouldn't feel that way. Right, right. Or avoidance or, oh, that's how you are feeling. You know, de- deer in headlights reaction. Uh-huh. The last thing I'll say, because I, I, as, as we're thinking, because people often ask this question, but I don't think I've ever really thought about it in depth. I think another, thinking back to me before I was a therapist, I was the guy at the party who would ask you the weird questions. I was the one who didn't just do small talk. I hated small mm-hmm. talk. I wanted to I wanted to know people. People I'd be having this in-depth conversation, people would come around the corner and be like, "What's up, dude?" and they and they'd hear us having this conversation. They'd be like, "Whoa, you guys are talking about some serious stuff." And I'd be like, "Well, yeah, I mean, it's way more interesting than the other things that people typically talk about." And and a lot of that involved me having to ask cuz people didn't ask me those questions, mm-hmm. so I had to ask them. So I'd be like, what do you think about God? What do you think about death? What do you think about about the meaning of life? What do you think about, you know, I don't know, just things like that. And I, so I think I got into that mode and, and would hear things slowly over time, such that by the time I was a therapist, I'd already invited that um, side of life into my life, such that it, it didn't shock me once I started to hear about it, right? Mm-hmm. Like I... I had heard about so many sexual assaults on women before I was a therapist because it's highly prevalent. And I guess, too, I would ask or something. Or So by the time I was a therapist, I was like, well, yeah, I mean, I've heard, I've heard these stories so often in my personal life. And so I would say to this patron, um, you know, do a little soul searching and... Is it? It's one thing to be afraid that the stories are going to be intense and know that it's part of life. It's another thing to realize if you don't want to listen to people's problems all day, if you, you know, there's lots of other jobs you could do. You could be a wellness coach and only talk about positive stuff. Um, but if you don't want to do soul searching, dark night of the soul work, you probably shouldn't be a therapist. Yeah, I mean, not to scare you away, but you could have a client, it's not uncommon, who suffers from major depression and PTSD and comes in every session talking about how they want to die mm-hmm. and how they hate themselves and everything that you try doesn't work. Great, and, so and your you, job to sit with that. Yeah, and you have to sit with them for two and a half years while they stare at the ground, slowly talking about how everything sucks and it's your job to be a therapist and do everything you can within your power to, to help them. And it you know might be swimming upstream. Um, so, And that doesn't mean that you're a bad therapist because no. they don't get better. And it doesn't mean that you're not helping. 
you know, mm-hmm. because if they didn't have you, maybe they'd really be off the deep end. Mm-hmm. So, but it can be extremely depressing work. You know, it's, it's not happy times. It's a drain at, when you're a therapist in that situation, you know? Um, but just to close out this section. So you're saying, Rebecca, that you, you know, a lot of people anecdotally who have dropped out of the field, mm-hmm. some of which dropped out because of the overwhelmed feelings of, of being exposed to the traumas of the class. Why else do people, in your experience, drop out? Um, the money's not good. Um, some people move to other states and their licenses don't transfer. But why, but why wouldn't they renew in those other states? Because some people would have to go back to graduate school. Like, they'd have to redo their whole license in order to... They'd have to start over, and they don't want to. Yeah. Um, why have other people left? Which I have to say is unusual, because at least in marriage and family therapy, the most you'd have to do is take one or two classes. Mm. Uh, maybe in art therapy, it's different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, why have other people left? Some people had careers before that paid better, and they just went back to doing that. Because it didn't, because being a therapist didn't pay enough. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of fantasies of like what the money will be like as a therapist. Yeah. And it doesn't always work out for everyone. And I think in the past it was harder. I feel like now. Oh yeah, it's you can easier. have a full practice quickly. Very quickly. Yeah. All right, second break, and we'll get to more emails after that. What do you say, Rebecca? Okay. So we're back from the break. Anonymous patron, she wrote in and said, During the pandemic, I found out that I might be into kink. Mm. I can't seem to find any kink-friendly or kink-allied therapists from nonprofit clinics or agencies to help me navigate my feelings through this or for the future. And the ones that are on the... And the ones that are are... Are the ones I cannot... Oh, and the ones that are... Mm-hmm. Are the ones I cannot afford. Yes. There are two R's right there. It's, it's interesting. You don't you don't think of two R's being the ones that are are the ones I cannot afford. Why aren't there more kink friendly or kink allied therapists? What trainings do current therapists received about mm-hmm. sexuality? What do you think, Rebecca? Well, it's funny that same group that I just mentioned, Anti Up, they have a good kink friendly training, but. Uh, this person's right. Most people in their therapy training aren't taught about sexuality at all, let alone sexuality that's now quite common. Used to be considered outside the norm, but now it's pretty standard. Um, So there could be a kinky website or group in your town that has a list of therapists that might work at a discount for new folks. Um, But talking about kink is not something that most people address in their beginning training. And most people at agencies are fresh out of grad school. Right. Not only have they not been exposed to it, but they've acquired all the anti or the sex negative and anti kink notions from society. And so not only will many therapists be ignorant, but they could flat out be regressive and oppressive and harmful to you if you did talk to them. So it's good that you're trying to find someone that is, you know, kink friendly, kink ally. And I did a quick search on psychology today, which is the main website, unfortunately that we have to search for therapists in your area. And 
some therapists will say. Did you search there? What percentage you you want to leave the field? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just ask them, right? Uh, And I saw a student of mine that I was, you know, mostly happy is thriving. Um, And some people actually will list on psychology today. You can't do a search for it, but you can look on the page and you can't like eliminate, you can't like say, give me all the kink allied therapists in my area. Like the database won't won't allow you to do that, but you can look for a, a sex therapy oriented therapist. And then you can look in their, uh, in their profile to see if they have words like kink allied or sex positive, this kind of thing. Also a fair amount of LGBTQ therapists are kink allied. I mean, you kind of have to be right. You're more likely to have absorbed or even been liberated yourself, you know, because when you, as a queer person start and you start to look at the world, you're like, man, uh, this world sucks and I need to push back against it. You start to wonder, you start to question a lot of the ideas, a lot of the sex negative ideas that are in our society, including kink negative ideas. And so, anyway, uh, up to your patron, Lucy from Australia says, is there a value in having a long break from therapy at 31? I'm thinking of stopping therapy for a while after 16 years of it on oh. and off. Yeah. Take a break. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm wanting to know what my life is like without reliance on my therapist. Uh, yeah. So you're saying it would be okay? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think for most people, you've learned what you can for the time and, you know, go out and live your life and come back when you need it. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of good that can happen from breaks. Uh, there can be some bad. You could lose your therapist because they're, they're, practice could fill up and you could never get them back, which could be a bad thing (laughs) depending on the situations. Um, But usually I find that if you as a client have been contemplating a break for a while, it's worth considering heavily because, you know, it's usually an indication of, I think I'm, I think I'm ready to kind of coast a little bit, or I think I'm ready to, as you say, live my life without therapy. Um, also, right now, open that spot up for someone that really needs it. Right. Patron Danielle from D.C. says, I have moderate anxiety in regards to doing therapy to the point that I've skipped appointments and even ghosted multiple therapists. Mm. What can I do, Rebecca? Well, you've got attachment issues. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm getting punchy. Um yeah, I mean, I would admit that to your next therapist and really figure out a plan. What are your triggers? When do you decide not to go? How, what does the anxiety start in the session? Does it start even before you get in the session? Um, you know, do you need to do a mindfulness meditation before you get on the bus? Like, you know, there's lots of things that can kind of be done to address this pattern. It's great that you've acknowledged it, um, and it must be frustrating that it keeps playing out. So I would really work with a therapist. If you probably want to work with a mindfulness-based therapist that could really help you break this problem down into smaller chunks, because you're probably making the decision to to not show up way before the session and just kind of sort out why that's happening. Yeah. The only other suggestion I'd have is Reddit. There are several subreddits where people will frequently 
talk about what you're talking about, Danielle. There's r slash mental health, r slash therapy, r slash PTSD, r slash OCD, r slash anxiety. And many people will go on those subreddits and say, I'm having so much anxiety about therapy. What do I do? You know, essentially it's a forum to get some potentially supportive advice. Um, you know, people saying, I was like you once, but it was so great, you know. So um, it's normal to have fears. You know, it's probably the very thing that you need to work on and worth continuing to try to push past that. And I would say, too, like have a therapy buddy, have a friend that you contract with that you text or something to say, I'm not going to go this session. And they will write back, yes, you are. You're going to go show up. Yeah. Um. So, you know, you're not in this alone because the secret of missing a therapy session can be, um, you know, you're working on something that's about secrets. <laughs> so make sure that you're honest with the people around you of what you're up to. Right. Patron Amanda from Los Angeles says, what is your approach to treating inherited family trauma? Mm. I'm a MFT grad student at Antioch, LA, and love your podcast. I am fascinated by how inherited family trauma can affect people, even sometimes skipping a generation or affecting people who weren't even aware of what happened to their relatives. Have you treated people suffering from this, and how do you approach it, Rebecca? Yeah, this is a lot of my work, is helping people see how the intergenerational issues play out. Um, so a lot of times it's helping people learn their family history. I have a client who has active substance abuse and really low self-esteem, and she knows her her mother, but not much beyond that. And I've asked her to start doing some family research because it's clear to me when a pattern like that is so developed and she just doesn't have any consciousness about this, that there's some intergenerational issues at play. There's a great book called It Didn't Start With You, hmm. which I would really recommend folks check out. Um, but the way I usually start is by helping people map their family histories. Hmm. And I mean, people's stories are amazing. Hmm. Uh, how people got to America, what people's immigration stories were like, what life was like in the country that they left. Um, it's I have one client whose parents came from a communist country and she was talking about how regulated her mom was on some certain issues. And I was like, oh, you can really see the background of growing up under communism. And she just laughed and she was like, oh my God, my mom would be so upset to hear you say that, that still 40 years after leaving a communist country, she's, you know, this is who she is. So I think a lot of it is acknowledging it and helping people do family research. I think 23andMe too has opened up a whole nother wing for people to find out family stories are true or untrue. Um, so for me, it's some of my, the favorite work that I do. Do you want to talk about your own intergenerational? Oh my God. I was just talking about this. Uh, so yeah, I can see it so strongly. I don't know for how many generations my family on both sides were in the pogroms, the slums of Russia and Poland, uh, where police brutality was just rampant and the Cossacks could come in at any moment and trample the village and take away everything, 
you have and, you know, rape and pillage. Um, but the level of anxiety in my family shows me that it's pretty prevalent and the idea that something could go wrong at any moment and somehow you need to both prepare prepare for it, stop it, and then, you know, go into shock if it actually happens. Emotional higher, you know, on the Maslow's pyramid issues are silly to focus on, right? Yeah, and the only skill you need to have to get through all of this is humor. And if you're not funny, there's something wrong. Like, I literally can't trust people who aren't funny. <laughs> because in my culture, and I've talked about this on the podcast, I, I'm rare in American culture in that my family is exactly the same on both sides. Same ethnicity, same income. They actually lived in the same neighborhood. Um, that the primary currency we have for survival is to be funny. And that if someone's not funny, <laughs> I just get really, like, confused. Yeah. And a lot of American culture focuses the Jewish story on the Holocaust, which is the Shoah. I mean, you know, a, a, a great tragedy of this century. But that genocide began in Europe centuries before. So just to know, if you know someone of Jewish descent, the Holocaust doesn't define their experience. It's just one example. It's just one example of genocides. Yeah. And and yet, we survive and are some of the f most funny, important minds of our time. I mean, that's, I always think about why do they hate us so much? And it's because it's a culture based on learning, questioning, and celebration. And it just must be so terrifying to outsiders to see this group that you try and stomp out over and over again, and yet they just keep going. Yeah. To educate the public listening right now about how you can have great-grandparents who went through horrible things that you are, you are suffering from today, and, and you don't even know those stories. So a lot of people think joining groups is great. Like being a part of groups, that must be something that you want. But for your average Jewish person, joining groups is dangerous. <laughs> groups are who turn against you and hurt you. Um, so it's just interesting. And Jews tend to, you know, make throughout, you know, they made their own sororities. They did, th you know, you had the Jewish version of almost everything. They're uh, summer camps. Right. Jewish summer camps the great indoctrination of all it. people ask me how did the Jews keep it together and I'm like Jewish summer camp like we have this down indoctrinate the youth into all of the fun parts of the culture and then they want to do it later they send their kids to do it because that was the best part of their childhood um, so I totally lost my thought I was going groups somewhere. groups but like for me groups are really dangerous like and that idea like, was passed down to you oh yeah like you know, Jews don't play football. Jews aren't on the cheerleading squad. Like, you could do something intellectual where you could show off and maybe outdo somebody, like, debate. So what would have happened 200 years ago that would have been... Uh, we weren't allowed in anywhere. Yeah. And we were given jobs that were distasteful. Like, that's where the whole miser money management was given to the Jews because Christians didn't want that to taint their, quote, spirituality. So, right. like... You know, we've been marginalized for so long. Right. Um, but I always think it's interesting when people are like, you know, why aren't there more Jews, whatever, doing this or doing that? And it's like, because it's dangerous. Mm. 
what's another what's another example of I mean, I guess the biggest one is you don't look Jewish, that there is a definition in the majority culture still to this day of what a Jew looks like. Wicked Witch of the West, right? Right. And the outside culture would define that. So I, having green eyes, and as a kid, I had blonde hair. My son has blonde hair and blue eyes. I would still say your hair is blonde. Dirty blonde. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, That... uh, you know, somehow these aren't Jewish traits where I know they're not Jewish traits in America because that definition of kind of, I always think of the penguin in Batman as the most kind of stereotypical Jewish. Right. Um, that, uh, you know, we're not allowed to also be William Shatner, who's half Jewish, right? Mm. Um, so that dynamic, I mean, people all the time say to him, you don't look Jewish, People say that all the time to me as well. Or I didn't know you were Jewish. And I'm like, oh, sorry. <laughs> but that definition of Judaism, you know, is is from a cartoon that's untrue. And also in Poland, Hitler went hard after the Polish Jews who are Jews that look like me because it went against mm. what he was trying to prove. So the highest amount of Jews per country killed in the Holocaust were Jews that look like me. Mm. So that my genetic legacy, part of it has just been erased, and that's why people don't know it or see it. Mm. Um, So that's another dynamic of like, you know, I need to know what Jews look like. Or Sarah Silverman just really called out how if a Jewish woman is empathetic, like the role of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in that movie that just came out, she's not played by a Jewish woman. So Hollywood also has these really subtle ways of, you know, we'll get a non-Jew to be the good Jew. If she's a crazy Jew, well, then a Jew can play her. Right. Stereotypical Jew, then she's a Jew. Interesting. Um, Internalized sexism email. Anonymous listener says, my girlfriend is in her latest, her last semester in a counseling program and is seeing clients in practicum. She has been experiencing high amounts of performance anxiety that tends to be present only when she is working with male clients due to a fear of being perceived as incompetent. Mm -hmm. She doubts that she has the skills to help, even though everyone around her knows that she is highly competent as a counselor. The stress is so great that it is making her rethink whether counseling is even the right profession for her. How can I, as a cisgender male, support her my female partner when she is doubting her own capabilities due to her internalized sexism what do you think Rebecca I mean I always say what's the worst thing that could happen a client is going to get upset and say that that advice wasn't helpful today right but that would be like a supervisor thing to right. say right like what could you say as a partner that's not a oh, therapist you know you know what it's okay to be a beginner <laughs> you're learning something brand new and it's going to be a while, but there's one day that you're going to be working with a client and you're not even going to notice their gender because you'll have seen enough people. Right. And being a beginner is hard. Yeah. The thing I'll say as a partner is listen and support. Uh, that's probably all you can't, are capable of doing. Just being there. I mean, it sounds like she reaches out to you and says, I'm, and I don't know what to do. I feel incompetent. I don't know if I want to be a counselor. Just, you know, listen, support. I, it it would be a tragedy maybe if she dropped out, but you know it's her choice. You really want to avoid mansplaining and and like 
acting like you know what's best and trying to change her or something. So, which would obviously be the wrong move, especially given the context. So, uh, there's that. Um, the other thing that you might be able to sprinkle in is something that I tell my my trainees all the time, which is you are incompetent. Stop trying to act like you're competent. You're not competent. Why would you be competent? You you're you know what I mean? Like there's this assumption of like, I don't feel competent. Yeah. No duh. You are incompetent. You've never done this before. That's why you're in graduate. You're not here to refine your skills. You're here to learn the basics. So just accept your incompetence. It's okay. And how narcissistic are you to believe that you should be competent already as a graduate student? Knock it off. And, you know, uh, some students are like, I don't like the way that sounds. And I'm like, well, you know, but uh, but half the students, they, it's so freeing to them because it's like, oh, oh, what a relief. Well, and American culture gives no room to be a beginner. Yeah. There's this idea that like we won't make any mistakes and that's what actually where you learn. Yeah. I, this is a therapist thing to say, but I'm also curious about her counter transports towards men in general. Right. Why does she think that they're somehow more judgy or smarter? And is it most very few men come to therapy? Hmm. So is she picking up on their nervousness? Hmm. Uh Anya from Poland. Oh. Writes. I'm a woman in my late... Isn't it true, Rebecca, that... This is just me asking you. That the Nazis wiped Jews out of Poland and com- completely... Like, there used to be a huge Jewish yes. community, and it's just after World War II, it's like, it's like they don't exist anymore. For the That's most actually... There is a growing Jewish... Jews. There's a small community. Actually, if you look up the Jews of Ratzau... It's quite touching. There's a community center there, and they're trying to build back that culture. There's also an amazing museum in Poland of 2,000 years of Jewish history in Poland. Yes. Wasn't there like a major yes. cultural presence? Rath- yeah, Ratzau was the center of Jewish life. Wow. I'm a woman in my late 20s. I've recently had a talk with my, with my male friend about distress we women feel just living life, mm-hmm. being scared of the terrible things that can happen and that actually happen to a lot of women. He was very understanding. He told me that he was not aware of the level of distress women face every day. He said that if women are afraid of men based on statistics, isn't that just as prejudiced as clutching your purse when you go past a black person? Isn't it sexist to be afraid of men? Rebecca, what do you think? Uh, So there is personal bias, and then there is oppression. Oppression is when a whole system is in place uh, to pan out that bias. So women can be biased towards men by being afraid of them, but they're not being sexist because they don't hold the same power. So if you look at Poland... Abortion is still in question there. Gay rights are still in question there. If you look at a woman's ability to report abuse and be believed, these are all things that are actually sexist against women and um, important that women, women be able to speak about. Yeah. Right. Agreed. All right. Well, that does it for that episode. <laughs> Thanks for Rebecca joining. needs... To eat her poke and soon. And everyone out there, take care of yourself. Why should they do that, Rebecca? Because you're you're smart, you're good looking, 
You've got a lot going for you. 